shooting out sparks over 38 states, the Canadian plains, and the tequila fields of Mexico. A program most deserving of a grand introduction. The Nocturnal Journal. The talk of the town. WGN Radio 720. With your guide, Dave Hoekstra. Daytime turns me off and I don't mean maybe. Okey-dokey. Happy New Year. Thanks for joining us on a three-hour New Year's night, Nocturnal Journal tonight. Um, we've got a lot going on. In the 9 to 10 hour, we're going to have a live performance uh, from Mary Lane, blues singer with uh, special guest Billy Branch on harmonica. We're going to talk about Molly. Is it Chicago blues dancing? Mostly blues, yeah. We can talk a little bit about swing and how they're related as well. But uh, yeah, my friend Sarah's on talking about blues. So dancing. that'll precede Mary Lane, and then we got our friend Nora Barton coming in, for, and her friends from Feed Restaurant uh, in Humboldt Park. Molly McGowan's going to be our sidekick tonight. Thanks Hi there. For, thanks for joining us, Molly. Oh, You've been it's on the my show pleasure. before, yeah. And our first guest, since it's New Year's Day, and it's supposed to bring good fortune, and also since I was at a Black Eyed Peas party before this. We're going to talk about the uh, history of Black Eyed Peas and why Black Eyed Peas are supposed to bring good luck on New Year's uh, New Year's Day. So in the studio, we have in order Katherine Lambrecht of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance, who brought some Black Eyed Peas. I sure did. Thank you. Recipe you, from Southern Living. <laughs> you've been on the show before. <laughs> Charlotte Draper. Charlotte. Hi. Formerly of... Um, Southern Living Magazine. And Ebony. And Ebony. Ebony, right. And we also have Donald Battle Pierce, culinary historian, author. So thank you all for joining us. So start off with why are we talking about black eyed peas on New Year's Day? Well, black eyed peas. And this is Charlotte okay. Draper. Mm-hmm. Black eyed peas are traditionally eaten on New Year's Day, they're considered good luck. And uh, for some reason, they have been equated with coins coin money, and um, usually they're paired with greens, which represent folding money. Right. So everybody wants to have good luck and lots of money in the new year. And um, what, are the, what are the roots of them? I mean, talk about the migratory path. I mean, I've, heard, I've read all kinds of stuff. I read Thomas Jefferson. I mean, how far do they go back? Well, actually, black eyed peas originated in Asia mm-hmm. over in China, and they were brought to this country typically on slave ships when people were brought to the United States. Thomas Jefferson did have black IP plants at his uh, plantation in Virginia, and they have been used to feed um, livestock. So during the Civil War, they were not destroyed. However, they're a very healthy food, and they really sustained people after the Civil War when so many people were impoverished as well as the freed slaves. And they travel. That sounds that sounds great. Yes. That's yeah. nice yeah. to know that they can go from one place to another and survive different climates. Yes. They are they're very versatile and they can be used in hot dishes, cold dishes, soups, stews, salad, and they can even be roasted and served as a snack. Catherine. Yes. What's in the recipe? Talk about the recipe you brought in tonight, and then let's talk about variations on that recipe. There's probably not just one way to do black-eyed peas. Well, this was your basic... Well, let me tell you. 
going to look for black eyed peas on New Year's Day is not a good idea. Uh-huh. They're gone. Uh-huh. And so the only thing I picked up was canned. But I adapted the recipe. It was from Southern Living. It was classic Hop and John. And it was uh, bacon that you cooked for a while. And then you added onions, pepper, um, some celery, some seasonings. And then you poured off some of the liquid and used that to cook the rice and then mix the two together at the very end. So it would have been better two hours ago, but uh-huh. what you have is what you have. Uh-huh. Are there different variations to the recipe? Yes. Okay. There, there are Donna? lots and yeah. lots. And there are lots that are being developed in there. Uh, I think of the <clears throat> the legends about where they came from and why. One of the things that, that I, as I look for soul food and uh, food with that's cultural it means so much more to to us as a culture to black people and as a culture than just something to eat or as a legend or something to read in a in an old book for a long time those um definitions or those places weren't cited or they were just you know it, it was not as important as other historical information so um for me for instance Hop and John, the name of the dish. I had a Mari Evans, who was a Negro, um, who came from the movement that uh, in the '60s, and she was my teacher in Black Studies at IU back in the '70s. And she said that name is not a name that our people would have ever called. And whenever I see it, I think of that. I remember she said a a, a black waiter hopping along with oversized lips and whatever. We think of black-eyed peas so much more spiritually, uh-huh. and yeah. they're so much more important than that. And so, uh, you know, and you can you'll see sometimes it's still called that, but you'll see a lot of. And and I in, in early days I would find I would be thrilled to find any information I could find, and I would recite that as if that were real history. But I think what's happening right now is a lot of our history about food is being reevaluated and really being well researched. Language, I mean, I, again, I, I, Hop and John's became uh, Skip and Jenny's. I read that. Yeah, what like happened there? Leftovers. Left that was leftovers. <laughs> the day after, <laughs> the day after the New Year's. Yeah, the day after the New Year's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are these? Are there um, for all of us here? Are there strong memory pulls to this? Do you remember the first experience you had with this, with a grandmother, with a mother uh, sitting around the table? What What are the memories of Black Eyed Peas? Well, I think yeah. they are. Um, a traditional family recipe that are often served, certainly on New Year's Day. I was uh, chatting with some folks at a new soul food restaurant, and one of the people said, well, they always had the black-eyed peas, but they also had sauerkraut and Polish sausage, which was surprising to me. But as I got into the research, I realized that that wasn't so atypical and very consistent with parts of the Midwest as well as the uh, Pennsylvania Dutch and Germans in West Virginia and also in Pennsylvania. And when you take a look at the other kinds of foods that people eat on New Year's Day, like herring or corned beef and cabbage and the pork and cabbage and sauerkraut, these kinds of things, it isn't something that's inexpensive to give away. But you can make a whole lot of Hop and John or Black Eyed Peas and be part of a festive atmosphere and not break the bank. Molly, I remember, like, you're from Vermont, right? Yeah. Was there a, 
was was there a black eyed peas scene up there? What was your first? What, no, what was your, no, 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 no. That would be a good Ben not. and Jerry ice cream. Yeah, we, I mean, I'm trying to think. I know around the holidays we would usually do chocolate bread pudding, but uh-huh. there wasn't any significance to that. We just liked it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And my, my family's from Mobile and oh, New Orleans, yeah. uh-huh. and we had, uh, I don't think I've ever had, I've never had a New Year's uh, Day without Black Eyed Peas. And But my grandmother added gumbo to that as well. Mm. But I think that's just because she wanted our family to always have gumbo, and it's always good luck. But I, I was in Paris about 10 years ago uh-huh. and scared to death that I wasn't going to be able to find Black Eyed Peas. And uh, with my son, Monique Wells, who okay. writes about history and black history in Paris and lives in there, brought me some because <laughs> I had to have a bite. Um, are there what are the health benefits to black eyed peas? Well, they're one of sure. uh, they're certainly a very nutritious food. They are not a complete protein, but once you pair them with rice, sure. you do have a complete protein. An excellent source of fiber, and they are uh, carbohydrate, which again is a good source of energy. And when you think of feeding people who were enslaved and or impoverished, that's what you wanted, something that was going to give you a lot of energy over a longer period of time. So it was an excellent food source. Do you know if there's any like relationship between black eyed peas and other types of bean well, or legumes? Black eyed peas actually are a bean, contrary to their name. <laughs> they are they are a bean and they're in the legume family. So they have that um legume bean connection. Like so many other beans, they're high high in fiber, good source of energy, carbohydrate. And again, when you pair them with rice, that'll give you a complete protein. I'm just thinking I spent some time in East Africa, actually, mm-hmm. and um, pigeon peas were like yes. the most nutritious mm-hmm. bean we could get or legume that we could get there. I hear it most often described as related to mung beans. Yes, that goes back to the connection uh, from China. They are related to the mung bean, as Donna said. And they also, uh, black eyed peas are also considered uh, cow pea or a pigeon pea. So there is that connection in the bean family. Okay, we've got to take a break. I want to come back and talk about the future of this, like with vegan soul food and things like that, where this is going to go, and, and also other New Year's traditions. We'll talk about that. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Let's just play that for a while. The JBs. We're talking about Black Eyed Peas on Nocturnal Journal with Molly McGowan, our sidekick tonight. And on our panel, we got Catherine Lambrecht of the Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance, Charlotte Draper, I have here formerly of Ebony, but more than that, and Donna Pierce, Donna Battle Pierce, author, culinary, and historian. Um, you know, I mean, they're served with ham hocks sometimes. Yep. And, and when I did the book on soul food a few years ago, I mean, there was just this movement just starting with vegan soul food. I think it's really exploding now. Maybe we can touch on that, too. But you, how do you see this falling into the modernization of, of, of soul food and soul food moving away from some of the traditions. Well, there's always, always been, um, you know, vegetarian soul food. Yeah. 
uh, not vegan necessarily, but they've always been. And it's always been healthier, I think, than it's been given credit for. Elaborate on that. The fact that uh, so many vegetables, that meat wasn't a big part of everything. It wasn't like big steaks and big roasts and whatever. If meat was involved, it was uh, oftentimes, for economy, it was often just a small amount of it. And um, when you talk about the meat in the um, in the uh, black-eyed peas, you know, it depends on the region and whatever. And I know that um, with the ham hocks, the, the smoked turkey. Mm-hmm. And then I use, uh, my family uses the ch- smoked Spanish chorizo because it's the most similar that you can find out, outside of the South to, um, to the uh, Creole sauce. I see. Oh, I see. Good. I see. Yeah, elaborate on that. Well, I think that certainly soul food traditionally has not included a lot of meat items. The meat just wasn't typically available to so many uh, the African Americans. And um, people learned to make do with what they had. They learned to flavor, whether it was the... Um, black eyed peas or red beans and rice, whatever bean they were cooking with, they learned to flavor with lots of spices and seasonings, and they learned how to extend the amount that they had. So the fact that it's become very popular for vegans or vegetarians at this time really is not surprising. It's, it's sort of a natural in your circles, do you just hear more people talking about black eyed peas, or it's always been on the, on the radar? Always. My always. friend and I, she's been having a party <laughs> for a long time. You know? Always, yeah, yeah, always, yeah, always, yeah, always, yeah. always on the radar. But you radar. said there was a run on them tonight to, to find <laughs> no, some. Well, there's always yeah, been there's a always run always on them, always, too. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. Can I just and say how delicious these were? The Excellent. <laughs> best recipe. Yeah, we're passing, uh, passing around, like that song said, pass them around. <laughs> you, you know, there, there, you had some kick to this. Talk about yeah, what there's, there's a little a, bit of cayenne in there. Uh huh. That's only a quarter teaspoon. Yeah. That's not very much, but the kick is present. Did the recipe call for that, or did you? Yes, add it, it did. Now we're going to try to get that recipe posted on the podcast so uh, listeners can can see it. Yes. Is that okay? Yeah, that's that fine. Okay? Southern now, Living would be very happy. <laughs> <laughs> now I know a little bit about this, but talk about you. You told me about this, Ken. The uh, the Black Eyed Peas Appreciation Society, 1937, where you joined for a, a dollar, for a, penny, a penny, a penny. A okay, penny. talk talk about that. So there was this guy named Elmore Torn, and he was from East Texas. And he came and learned about the Black Eyed Peas and the tradition of of uh, good luck it brings. He called them Lucky Peas. And, you know, this was the 1937. We're talking the Depression era still. And they were looking for anything that would add value to agricultural stuff they started marketing black eyed peas heavily and it got to the point where even Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Kate Smith were talking about eating their lucky black eyed peas on New Year's Day it was a very active campaign and it really I would say probably put black eyed peas on the map relative to our culture today um, in, this, in these, some of these notes, there were these uh, oil men who uh, went to Vegas and they had what, black eyed peas for breakfast in the morning, and they uh, they won over ten thousand dollars. Yeah, that, that really <laughs> sold the idea yeah. that they were lucky. I don't know if you want to see this? Yeah. So that you maybe that kind of started the whole popularization thing. I would think so. Uh-huh. Mass Cro- market crossover, maybe, yeah, right. crossover yeah. from yeah. black culture. Yeah, yeah, right. But it was probably one of those things that was little known outside of the black culture. Right, and that's great because it. Well, in a, in a way. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. You know, better to be known than not known. Yeah. Um, Cash had a question. Um, good question, too. Best way to grow them. Charlotte, you want to take that? Well, I've not grown any personally, but they are one of the uh, crops that are very beneficial to the soil. They add nitrogen to the soil, and that would be um, beneficial for other food items that grow in that same plot of land. Mung beans are pretty easy to sprout, at least, I imagine. Yeah, I I think it's funny. My dad was uh, in Tuskegee and studied the last few years of George Washington Carver. And he was, but he was a city kid who went there and fell in love with agriculture. So we always had a giant garden growing up. And he could never grow black. Really? That, that was in, where was that, in Mobile? In Missouri. Wow. Oh, yeah. really, in Missouri? We were first-generation Great Migration, my sisters and brother and myself. We, they moved to Columbia, oh, okay. the center of the state. Yeah. And, and he tried, he grew everything else. He grew sweet potatoes, he grew ton. you know, but he, he never could, could have a successful crop. Hmm. Wow, wow. Um, so, three, this might be tough. Three facts about black eyed peas that people don't know. What the the whole uh, marketing thing was one thing I didn't know. But what what's what's an obscure fact about them? They're originally from China and are related to the mung bean. Yeah. And oh, so we have two. Could they also be related to the soybean too? Because there's soybeans that have that black eye, and there are soybeans that don't. I didn't see that in any of the stuff I read in the past few days. But that doesn't mean they're not connected somewhere in that bean family. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. What else, Donna? One of the things I read about um, why, how they survived when they were used a lot for animal feed as well. And when, the, when Sherman marched through the South and destroyed crops, one of the crops that he didn't destroy were the black-eyed peas. Mm-hmm. And then everybody who was so impoverished, and that's where cross-culturally they became popular, started to realize these are pretty tasty. And so that was a, a way that they, um, they survived all of that or they passed on. The cross-cultural thing, we've got to break for the news in a minute, but um, the shared heritage is, is really important. There's a quote here uh, from Ashana Bailey. It was in the New York Times just a couple of weeks ago. She has a restaurant in Savannah, like, a broader reach through a broader table, you know. So the fact that people are talking about this. And, it's and a like, wonderful, I agree, but I agree that also what's missing is attribution. Okay, uh-huh. And also co-opting some of the things. One of the only things when you think, when I, one of the reasons I got so involved with soul food was because we didn't have names. We had names that were given to us. We didn't have a lot of history at the time. We didn't have a lot of anything else. But food was one of the things that all black people could share in common. So instead of it being a joke, that always bothers me when it becomes something, a toss-off or whatever, because it's a very significant cultural part for us of joining people together when i've done food books um one one thing i get a kick out of and i don't know how much this has been in your research is just finding the old handwritten recipes it really really resonates with me to have someone go through their files or go up in the attic or go in the basement and find the recipes that were handed down do you see that with this yes i do except for the fact too when people will say the first recipe was printed in this book you know, people maybe forget that it was illegal for blacks to learn how to read and write. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. a lot of times these things were conveyed, but they were not because somebody 
came up, you know, in her uh, parlor with this idea or cooked it in her kitchen, it was almost always gotten from the African-Americans that were... I think I heard uh, just the other day on the radio that um, people sometimes put a dime in it. Is that a new yes. phenomenon, or is that a That's l- a real old tradition? one. That's okay. very old one. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a break for the news. I'm going to keep you on for a little bit. I want to talk, and, uh, and then we're going to um, talk. Uh, I want to talk about your own projects. You can plug what you're doing, and then um, we'll talk a little bit more about soul food and uh, southern food. So don't go away on Nocturnal Journal. What you gonna do with all that junk? All that junk inside the trunk. I'ma get, 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 get you drunk. Get you love drunk off my hump. What you gonna do with all that ass? All that ass inside the jeans. I'ma make, 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 make you scream. Make you scream, make you scream. Cause of my hump. My hump, my hump, my hump. My hump, my hump, my hump. My lovely lady lumps. Check it out. I met a girl down at the disco. She said, hey, 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 let's go. Okay. Hey, Nora Barton, you know, that's the Black Eyed Peas. Oh, boy, I love that. <laughs> so welcome back to uh, Nocturnal Journal. We're talking about Black Eyed Peas with Molly McGowan, our sidekick tonight. Woo-hoo. Thanks for joining us, Molly. <laughs> Catherine Lambrecht of Greater Midwest Foodways Alliance. Charlotte, Charlotte Draper. I'm going to give right. you just, just give it another uh background thing besides what i've been saying of ebony magazine well i have a blog yeah. called chow chow and soul right that takes up a fair amount of time yeah. so uh, that keeps me busy and donna battle pierce right well let's go around the table i want to talk about um like i said soul food and, and southern food but let, let's find out what you guys are out doing and plug your projects so donna what have you been up to well i am um and actually i'm a former assistant food editor at the Tribune, Chicago Tribune, and test kitchen director. And I I find what's so beautiful as a journalist is that I combine my cooking and I test recipes, and when I do that, my writing is so much better. Mm -hmm. I'm currently working on a a book about Frida DeKnight and great migration recipes. And these are people that, uh, what happened with Southern food outside of the South? And how they changed, and how they, and how some things are more representative of old school traditions because they came here and stayed just the way they were, as opposed to evolving, you know, in the South. Give us, give me an example of that. Of one of the ones yeah, that yeah, did. Yeah, I remember uh, oxtail. Uh, we had a conference when Edna Stewart from Edna's was still yeah. alive. Uh-huh. And I loved her so much, and what an amazing woman. And uh, at her restaurant, Southern Foodways came up, John T. Edge and different yeah. others. And we and everybody agreed, this is more, this is like the historic taste. And it's because she had it from a recipe that had been a family recipe, and in Chicago wasn't as challenged as it was as a chef would change, or, and as a Savannah chef uh that you know evolved and changed and kind of uh, she kept it the old way. Charla, well, I swear you've been on the show before, but you haven't. Well, I can come back and visit another <laughs> yeah, time. Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I have a I have a blog, Chow Chow and Soul, and uh, what I try to do with my blog is imper- encourage people to cook with confidence as they're cooking or creating or remaking a family recipe i want people to feel confident as they're moving forward to create new family memories and one of the things that um i did in preparation for today's show was a very quick qualitative survey on what people ate for uh, new year's day 
and most people that responded do eat greens of some sort, uh, primarily collard greens, but people do eat a blend of mustard greens, kale, turnip greens, and I also had about 10% of the respondents ate okra as well as eating um, sauerkraut, which was surprising. And it was abundantly clear that most of my respondents did eat pork, again, a food that's associated with richness uh, because pork generally is a fatty food. What about pickled herring? Well, pickled herring is considered one of the lucky, one, yeah. a lucky food, and uh, that silver color of the herring is equated with uh, silver and wealth or riches, money. So, again, that's the connection with the pickled herring. But I didn't have that question in my survey. (laughs) (laughs) I think I do remember being really young um, in, like, third grade-ish, and there was a discussion of these types of traditions, and pickled Mm -hmm. herring was one that was brought up. And the sauerkraut on the app. in the cabbage, I think of as Baltimore for some reason. I remember, I wonder if those respondents came from Baltimore and from that area. Well, I think some of the connection with the sauerkraut and the Polish sausage is, uh, could very well be back in days when people were actually mining. Like, I have a cousin who lived in a mining town, and they had, um, they were like shotgun houses, and the family next door was Polish, and he said he could speak Polish better than he could speak English up until the time <laughs> he went to school. <laughs> <laughs> Catherine, what, what's up with you? Oh, well, uh, I've been working on a uh, Illinois Bicentennial project, which finished yesterday because it had to finish yesterday because I needed a copyright for 2018. Oh, really? The Bicentennial of <laughs> Illinois was 2018. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot do it 2019. And it's a collection of recipes and histories that we obtained via a family heirloom recipe contest at the Illinois State Fair for the last 10 years. But I was thinking about your comment, Donna, about, the, uh, about Edna's and the food. Um, One thing that has happened, for instance, the Polish, I'll just give this an example, but the Polish community here in Chicago serves food that is old-timey and largely unknown back in the old country. It's kind of like there's that tradition, though, that immigrant family, these are that food that meant a lot to us. And we pass it on to our family, and it becomes part of the family tradition. But then you get the outsider who's coming from Poland, and it's like, gee, I haven't seen that in our place in years. So sometimes we're almost, when you're isolated, like Edna was, in a sense, from the Southern culture, you know, you sometimes hold on to things Mm -hmm. that other Mm -hmm. people have tried it and now moved on. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to mention, too, my sure. Skillet Diaries. Mm-hmm. Skillet Diaries and Black America Cooks are the two places where, and I have a not-for-profit where I join seniors with kids, 
and the, and the kids we talk about journalism and how to how to do biographies and do those type of things. And the seniors share their recipes and their oh, stories. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about that. Yeah. And how can people find out about that? Oh, you can do it from uh, Skillet Diaries or, or Black America Cooks. And are there websites for that? I have a link. Yeah, there are, that, those are the websites. Okay. SkilletDiaries.com and BlackAmericaCooks.com. Well, how, how long have you been doing stuff with the kids? I've been doing that. I did it with the city about four years ago. And now I do it in small groups and schools and whatever else. It's one of the ways, for me... Um, even if you just have, even if make this recipe once a year, to save this recipe and to understand then how how important those memories are is very important. All you guys, I mean the the path that we touched on it earlier, but the uh, I brought Edna Lewis in here, but I'm not going to refer to it yet. Don't uh, what's the place up in Andersonville? They're they're old disciples of them. Uh, big um, Big Jones. Big Jones. Yeah, mm-hmm. they use this as a thing. Talk about the migratory pass. We, t- we we touched on that, but that's that's just essential to our conversation. Elaborate on that. Right, the people from the um, from the south in a, a lot of ways that that came up at different times. Um, my family in the fifties came up from, and it began though at with the um, at, at the turn of the century. Before then, <coughs> as people would leave, uh, often awful conditions to come. My parents were both college graduates, and they left because they wanted their children not to be a part of segregation. And they decided they were leaving all the stuff they had behind to do that. And so, what they did too is it was hard to find food. Mm-hmm. And so, when my mother wanted to make gumbo. All she had in Columbia, Missouri at the AMP were the little frozen shrimp, and she would have she didn't have filet. So my grandparents, when they would come to visit us on the train, they would come with giant coolers, you know, of, of oysters and crab and shrimp, and my parents were thrilled. And they would tell us maybe we would want something else to eat because they wanted to eat all of it. But no, we would all have the big gumbo. Yeah, right. I mean, it really does take you to uh, right. another place. And that's the great migration. A lot of things changed. A lot. There were. There's a cookbook written in 1926 of um, 13 black women in Montana. And there are places you don't you don't realize that here are people, and that was part of the movement that uh, it it went on to California. Eventually, a lot of those families moved on, but there there were people all over the country. That were there and bringing food that they had grown up with that was important to them. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? Um, in the time we have left, I kind of want to set up, set the table for the uh, next. <laughs> I'm glad you got that for the next discussion. Um, and it's, it's something that people talk about. I mean, what's the difference between? I've been teasing this throughout the segment between soul food and and southern food. Uh, I mean, and some of the, our guests uh, coming up are, are from Feed and Humble Park, and uh, you know, it's southern food, chicken shack stuff. Is there a big difference between soul food and and southern food, or are they the same thing, just under a different name? I think that many of the foods that are under the southern food umbrella traditionally, they, I mean, so many. African Americans were from the South. Mm-hmm. So there is that crossover and intertwining of the foods. But when you say soul food, you know, I just feel like that has a lot more of the family connection and emotion tied in with the food and with the meal. Because certainly a meal is um, really an opportunity to sit down 
and exchange information and ideas and make connections with your family members or even your ancestors. So that's kind of my interpretation of what soul food is. What do you think of all these... um like celebrity chefs and uh, new restaurants that are coming up that are getting like Bib Gourmand um, types of awards and things uh, that have, you know, come come from roots uh, foods or mm-hmm. southern foods. Well, as Nana mentioned, I do think it's important that where the food comes from that there is that attribution as to the history of the food. And certainly when... Um, people receive awards and acclamation about the food or their menu if they're not people of color they should recognize well this originally started with people of color and we adapted it or we've made a few changes but I do want to give credit to the beginnings where the food came from and where it started that would really be the thing to do who's doing that well would you say the attribution yeah i think big jones does right. a good yeah. job right. here in the city right. yeah. and the food is pretty phenomenal at his restaurant yeah. jennifer booker's coming there and at the end of this month who's a black chef in uh, atlanta who's coming there to cook and to talk about that do you have a second for one thing about soul food, though? Oh, yeah, sure. Car- uh, Carla Hall's new book. And Carla Hall, at the very beginning, kept saying that, no, she didn't really. She was kind of general and whatever. And, and her recent transformation with the soul food cookbook that she wrote, she said something that Frida DeKnight said back in the um, in 1948 when she wrote her book, By Us for us was her. And Carla said the same thing. And she said, soul food is cooked by black people. That's the difference. It can be anything. It's not a specific dish. It's not necessarily this. But and I all I used always say in my presentations. Imagine Reba McIntyre sings um, "Respect" yeah. and Aretha right. Franklin. And to me, that's the difference. But that's a difference of soul. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't see Paula Deen doing soul. <laughs> but no, that's a whole other Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Like to be, but yeah, Big Jones—they do a great job of, of uh, talking about Edna Lewis up there. He's been on the show, and you know they start talking about. What and he's from Southern Indiana. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah. You know, when we did when I did the research uh, on my book, I would go around and talk to people about what what is soul. And one of the common, just because I like soul music, and one of the common responses I got was, you know, soul is from the heart. Soul is love, and that mm-hmm. that can come through, in, obviously, in, in the food, right? True, very yeah, true. Yeah. What else uh, in the time we have left, which is not much, but um, any other, What's what else is happening with soul food restaurants here? I mean, you mentioned Big Jones, and what's Big the scene Jones like? Big Jones is not really a soul yeah, food right. restaurant. Yeah, right. Well, it's Southern food. Right. Yeah. What, 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 what's the scene like here? Well, or, where new, else would you go? Yeah. There's a new restaurant in Hyde Park, Virtue Soul Food, and um, I have not had an opportunity to eat there yet, but... I did spend some time at the restaurant about a week ago, and I found the people very warm and hospitable. So I'm looking forward to dining with Virtue next week. And they're in Hyde Park? Yes. Yes. Is Soul Veg still open on the far south side? Soul Vegetarian? Yes. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. They're doing okay. But a lot of the classic soul food places are gone, aren't they? 
Well, I think the ones that traditionally there weren't as many options for eating you like Isolas and um Edna's and um I miss Army and Lou's and Army and Lou's and, yeah. and what was the one that was in Bronzeville uh that so many of the celebrities went to when they came to town. They were on I Indiana. I used Gladys's. to keep, I used to oh, keep Gladys's, track yeah. in Waukegan there used to be a number of soul food restaurants. But they would kept coming and going so fast I kinda gave up on the project. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Well thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's to talk a about Black Eyed Peas on mm-hmm. New Year's night. Thank you, Donna Battle Pierce. Thank you, Charlotte Draper. Thank you, Dave. Catherine Lambrecht. Thanks You're for welcome. bringing in the food. You're welcome, and you got my book in yeah, that disc. And come back and talk about that sometime. Great. We'll be back with uh, Nora Barton and some music and stuff about feed after this on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we're with our friends. From feed warming up in the, in the background, and we have our I haven't seen you in a while, Karen Mager. Hi. Can you can you hear me? Okay. I can hear you just fine. And uh, talk a little about where feed is. Feed's in Humboldt Park, and you work there today. Yeah, yeah. It's at the corner of California and Chicago, right next to the Continental. Yeah. And how long have you been at feed? Um, I'm thinking about uh, eight to ten years. I can't remember. And how'd you start there? Uh, a friend of mine, my coworker, worked there on the weekends, and so she asked if I wanted to pick up a brunch shift. So I did, and it's been ten years later, and I'm still there. And uh, we were talking. Describe the, in your own words, describe the cuisine. I've seen it as a as a sugar shack. I mean, a chicken shack. A chicken shack, yeah, yeah. basically. But um, yeah, it's Southern American. It's got everything from uh, rotisserie chicken. Everything's homemade from scratch. It's a scratch kitchen. Um, it's got uh, the best collard greens in the city. Now, why do you say that? Oh, they're just so tender and meaty, and it's like sometimes you get that big chunk of pork. It's like you won the collard green lottery. <laughs> so it's a little bit of a you know you got the collard greens, you got the pork. Uh, we've got some dr- uh, catfish that's dredged in cornmeal, deep fried. That's excellent as well. And then we have our brunch, which we get uh, fried green tomato Benedict, uh, mm. chicken fried steak, pulled pork hash. You name it. We were. I don't know if you heard the segment before. We were. T- talking about is there a difference between soul food and southern food um i think just a smidge depending on some of the cuisines sometimes we get some people calling in and asking if we have chitlins we don't have that kind of stuff but we have everything else from uh you know the fried green tomato benedicts uh the fried green tomatoes the the chicken the pulled pork all that that good fare a lot of good vegetable sides yeah the succotash mm-hmm. but mostly the macaroni and cheese, cheese. yeah cheese grits Wait. So you've been there for ten years. How? When? What year did the did feed open? I think it was two thousand six. I actually remember that I, when I moved to Chicago. One of the reasons I moved to the Ukrainian village was because feed was right there which between is, feed and Star Lounge. It was like this is heaven. Which is crazy because <laughs> back then there was nothing around in that area. Oh yeah. So I think there was the nearest restaurant was about a mile away. That was. You know. And I don't think you have a sign in front that says feed. You have to look for the chicken. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's a I yellow sign there. with a chicken silhouette. Yes, yes, that's yeah. and there's a sign now. It's, oh, it does say feed. Yeah, now? you just gotta look for the corrugated tin roof that's next to the the garden, the big giant garden that used to have chickens next door, but I think they uh, the chickens are now gone to a different place. 
People, do they confuse that garden with you guys? Yeah, all the time. Yeah. We'd get people asking us, uh, those are chickens, and is that what we're serving for breakfast? And I was like, there's only like 50 chickens out there, and there's 50 people in here. There's no way we can get that many eggs. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How's the neighborhood changed? I lived there for a long time. Oh, yeah. It, is, yeah. it seems like it's changing every nine months. Uh, back at, you know, Back when it first started, you, you would get some cops in there, just some you know people working you know that worked local, um, and now you're going to get young couples uh, with their children that you know you, before you, nobody came in there with kids. Now it's it's a really kid friendly place. Um, you get a lot of dudes brunching. Um, so that's a that's an <laughs> you know all those great chicken pictures, chicken pictures, chicken motif in the bathroom. Yeah, we're BYOB, so we get all sorts of like you know. 20, 30-year-olds coming in with their, their booze and just having a nice, relaxed brunch or dinner. And we've had people rolling coolers before. Really? Really? Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> What's, um, what are the original owners? They sold and um, Yeah, moved. Donna and Liz. They're out in uh, Albuquerque now. And talk about the current owners. I mean, uh, Milton and his wife, Liliana. Lovely couple. They uh, originally, they, they were cooks. They've been cooks. Um, they've been there longer than I have, so... They've, I think they've been there 12 years, or Milton has been there 12 years. And when she retired and went out to Albuquerque, she sold it to them. And now uh, we're going to have some music. Maybe it will be have to be after the news, music with Nora. Yes. And you met Nora there. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah, Nora and I served brunch together. And um, again, like the the atmosphere at brunch, everybody that works there, we're like a family and we, we really love each other. So you'll see it sometimes when you're, you know, we've had people mention that, like, we can tell you guys like each other from the busboy, the cooks. We just, you know, every time we come in, we give each other hugs and we're just really supportive. And it's, mm-hmm. that's just a nice, it's a good atmosphere. That's just how feed is. It's warm and homey and we really love each other and we just want to give everybody that, that food that just makes everybody feel loved and, you know, comforting. And I think brunch is the only time you do table service, otherwise you have to go up to the counter and place Correct. your order. Yeah, and it's cash only, too. It is yeah. cash only. Yeah, it's oh, cash yeah. only. Yeah. But you've got those cute little... You have a um, dispensing machine, right? Uh, oh, that kind of uh, went down. <laughs> <laughs> that, um, there was a piece of uh, uh, equipment that broke on that, and it's they don't make that anymore. It's hard, it's, to, find it's hi- to, hard to find somebody yeah. to fix it or replace it. Yeah. Well. yeah. Okay. okay, we're going to take a break from the news. We're going to come back with some live music after this on WGN. Heat up the skillet, throw in the pan All over the land Oh, family loves shortening breath I'm crazy about breath Two little boys laying in bed One rolled over and the other one said My mama made shortening breath Always cooking that bread Ask your mama, ask your pa, what does it take to tear down your walls? They said, make shortening bread, our baby loves bread. My bedroom's like a bird's nest made of pictures of you, I must confess. And it always smells like shortening bread, always baking that bread. In your yard late last night Wishing I could hold you tight Instead I made you some shortening bread Came home and baked bread 
beers to get up the nerve to get a little gift you deserve. I made you some shortening bread. I brought you some bread. Two little boys laying in bed. One rolled over and the other one said, My mama made shortening bread. My mama cooked bread. Heat up the skillet, throw in the pan, smell it all over the land. The whole family loves shortening bread. We're cooking that bread. There you go. That's Matthew Shelton and Nora Barton. Shortening bread. Live from the Allstate Skyline Studio on WGN, and we're talking about we were talking about soul food. Now we're kind of going to Southern American food. Nora, I've known you forever from yeah. from Feed. Hey. I, I'd go there like three nights a week, wouldn't I, for that chicken? Yeah, you did. For the <laughs> right before close. Yeah. Yeah. Cleaned up. Oh. And uh, I maybe want to put, I want to talk about that song. So, Matthew, maybe can you take mic six, the far end? Because uh, um, I want to know specifically, and then I want to go into some ideas type stuff. Um, okay. But how did you guys come up with that arrangement? And there's a song everybody knows about. <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you go in that direction? Um, I first heard it by Mississippi John Hurt. And I think I was just picking around on a guitar and sort of accidentally found that melody, and it sounded familiar, so I taught myself a cover of the song. And then when I went back and listened to John Hurt's version, I didn't play it right at all. (laughs) (laughs) But it still sounded good, and it felt good. And uh, the first two verses are the original, traditional verses, and then the rest I made my own little story. Yeah, and how do you incorporate the cello into it? Well, Mark? with Matt's uh, finger picking style, uh, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Just nice one five chords, a few, not not much more than that. And then even the instrumental verse, uh, just nice like whole notes, nice cello layer. I mean, obviously we all just heard it, but it brings such a evocative dimension to it. It just oh yeah, yeah, you know, it's really really. <laughs> Someone just texted me that it makes it so classy. <laughs> Um, so now uh, in a concept thing Nora talk about all the you've been on the show before Mm -hmm. how many times we didn't get kicked out of the studio tonight (laughs) I I love telling that's my favorite big time radio story that was New Year's Eve when we got kicked out of the studio two two years ago yeah but we we persevered (laughs) Um, but talk uh, tell the listeners all the different uh, things uh, you're involved in you and Matthew and then I want to lead to another question after that okay Uh, the first time we were on I was on with Billy Howard a violinist friend of mine and we we did some experimental improvisation, lots of like extended techniques and stuff, and uh, something really different than than what you normally have on here, I guess. Yeah. Uh, second time was with uh, me and Matt's band, Extraocular. Yeah. Uh, it's us. Matt plays a Ray Mbira and guitar and some other um, Zimbabwean Mbiras. Alexis uh, Diasopoulos plays electric guitar. I play cello, and we all use a lot of effects pedals. It makes it real space jammy and stuff. Um, and uh, the marching yeah. band stuff. Talk oh, about other yeah. things. Uh, Muka Pazza. I'm in the punk rock marching band called Muka Pazza. We actually 
played uh, New Year's Eve last night at Lincoln Hall. Uh, how'd, how'd that go? Sold out show. It was a blast. Was it really? It was a lot, yeah. a lot of fun. Um, currently, our next show is May 3rd, Friday, May 3rd at Martyrs, and we're celebrating International Tuba Day. So, <laughs> just right. Um, and then I'm also going on tour with Manual Cinema. Uh, they're a, a theater company. They uh, use a lot of shadow puppetry, live actors, graphic artists, combined with live music. Um, keeps it relatively low-tech. Um, use very simple tools. Uh, creates an immersive theatrical setting. Manual Cinema is great. They're I amazing. saw the. I was there for... A museum. You did like an interactive thing yes, with the kids. History and museum. Yeah, oh, that was amazing. So gorgeous. All these kids got to like do kind of shadow puppets yeah. and see how yeah. see how light works and yeah. creates different shapes. It's That's incredible. great. I'm glad you're here because I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so, so what is that? Uh, so I'm going on tour with them. And well, who are? I mean, what do they do? It's a theater company. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, okay. so they combine a uh, shadow puppetry oh, and live okay. music. It's uh, really incredible. Very and dance unique. and dance. Incredible yeah, dancers. Um, so I'm touring with them with um, their production of End of TV, which showed at the Chopin Theater over the summer. Um, but I'm going to Boston with that in January, and then they are also going. They're going to be in New York with um, Frankenstein, which they just closed up at Court Theater at mm. University of Chicago. And that's a behemoth of a production. Now, here's this is going to be a stretch, obviously, but for our food angle on this with <laughs> Catherine and Karen, I mean, um, and, and, and Nora, you worked at Feed. I mean, the gumbo, just putting all kinds of different ingredients in the thing. There's no one way to do stuff. Can you talk about how the gumbo and music and all the different things she's involved in, how that mm. how that relates to, to food and or am I just... Uh, no, there's it? something there. Yeah. Let's see. Um, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a classically trained musician. I have two degrees in cello performance, and yet I find myself playing everything but classical these days. Um, obviously, it's very handy to have these chops with me, but um, I find myself just steering farther and farther away from what I studied. Um, but it's also nice to make uh, a living off this stuff, and that's that's generally where... Um, it comes in handy. I can actually play this instrument and sound really good and get paid yeah, decent yeah, money for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, so yeah, gumbo, yeah, but sorry. It feed, yeah, feed, <laughs> just a blending of styles. Yeah, it's yeah. got a little bit of everything. Um, sometimes we'll have some different kinds of specials, and uh, some of the sp- specials are so popular they go on the menu permanently, like our chili quiles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and our. Um, we do a black and catfish benedict. Uh, so we're going to get, we do all sorts of kind of fun stuff because it's a scratch kitchen and we make things from scratch. So that's the nice thing about the, the, the place. I've been working there for about 10 years and I'm not sick of the food because it's homemade. You can't get sick of homemade food. Mm-hmm. I, um, I was going to say before the break, um, I, I've been going there for a long time and the, the, the vibe hasn't changed. Um, has the menu changed at all? No. Yeah? Not really? at all. It's going to be the same the same boards as when Donna and Liz were there, and same boards now, and we'll just add a few things once in a while, but yeah, it's all the same food. Because, uh, Matthew, I was going to talk just about how music evolves. Mm-hmm. Can menus evolve? I mean... Uh, yeah. I guess I'm the opposite of Nora. I, I came at music pretty ignorant, and I was an artist by trade, if you could call it that. Um, but music was just something to have fun with and when i was discovering music i wanted very much to have a punk band and a folk thing and you know play free jazz and just um 
and I wasn't aiming for any kind of technical or there was nobody there to tell me it was terrible and it often was <laughs> but you from cincinnati is that right yeah and i i, I love this guy <laughs> this is the second time we've shared a stage uh yeah. so to speak what was the other time uh we did a um tonic taco room. tuesday at the tonic room yeah. um matthew shelton opened for us and man i love i love your voice thanks I love your finger picking too. You, I admire it so much. Did you live in Cincinnati? No, no, okay. no. I just remember that was the connection, and you went to art school there too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mid nineties in Cincinnati, where you could live for one hundred and fifty dollars a month in a big place with enough room to, and so yeah, I did a lot of self indulgent uh, music recording and. There was just a lot of freeness going on among the people there that did want to do it. There wasn't a very large uh, population of people, but some pretty cool things happen when everybody's broke, but they're able to work part-time and um, just trying to play every kind of music you can. Um, and that's how I initially met Matt, was um, playing on his album back in 2005 or whatever that was. Yeah. And what album is that? Uh, Cold Water Hot Blood is the title of it. Um, it's a guitar songs with chamber arrangements. And My first time in a studio ever. Really, really. Yep. <laughs> yep. There's Brock- a lot of good music in Cincinnati. There is. And there's Skyline Chili. Everywhere. <laughs> is that southern right food? Ooh, no. yeah. it was, uh, it's German. Macedonian no, influenced food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Greek family that invented it. I thought. Oh, Greek. Okay. I mean, it's Kentucky. Oh, <laughs> <Close>. Ohio, <laughs> Northern Kentucky. <laughs> what brought Matt? What brought you to Chicago? Uh, Nora, mostly. Really? Yeah. Aww. <laughs> we met in Cincinnati, and she was in a band of mine. Uh, but then she went away to school, and we weren't a couple back then at all. But uh, yeah, she played on that record before I'd ever met her. Actually, uh, the producer had a cellist come in, and I wasn't even there, so I heard I heard her on my music before I ever even met her. I love the story, and I cried. I did cry. <laughs> it was the first time anybody had ever produced something of mine. Like, it was just me with a four-track for years, and this dude brought in flutes, and it was, uh, it's still one of my favorite recordings. What changed for you um, musically and artistically, uh, maybe not uh, when you moved to Chicago? Mm. (laughs) I I lost any sense of an audience or uh, (laughs) uh, Well, there's a huge audience here, but suddenly I was, I don't know, the visual art and things, it's always been a seesaw, and I have a hard time with the idea of taking music too seriously. I've I've done that, and I don't know, there's not, uh, the reward is in itself, and once I get in a position where I have to make money or have to, I try not to pressure myself with music. Um, except for when it's healthy and gets me out of the house playing but uh, it has slowed down a bit since I've been here but um, do you just mean professionally you don't take it seriously or it's there's a lightness to some of the music that you make I take the music pretty seriously Um, I work very hard at it Um, 
I don't write as much lately as I used to. I mean, your voice reminds me so much of John Hartford. I'm sure you hear that a lot. Yeah. Um, and a lot of his songs, I think he took his music very seriously, but uh, are lighthearted and yeah. funny. You don't want to be pretentious. Yeah. I'm, I take the finger-picking and all that seriously as far as the lyrics go. I don't whatever works well now molly you said you shared i mean you're involved in performance arts here i do some i do wacky things all over the place and how long (laughs) you've been on the show before i I sing i perform i contort my body i don't know (laughs) and how long you've been in in chicago uh 10 years okay so i'm gonna go the same direction i mean what do you find the performance scene like here for what you do and you do like you said you do a lot of different things what was the thing you guys were on before uh, on that it was a taco tuesday it was one of the very few oh tonic room hosts like a you can get a bunch of different musicians on stage and you don't get you don't make a lot of money but it's it's a a great room yeah it's a nice venue very supportive place and they must serve and they do free tacos so that's a good yeah that's a good um gig that's it is one of the best gig. parts of you it said and you're kind of guaranteed some audience uh. and you get to connect with other people that are doing music that interests you i mean the part i like about playing music and doing radio and doing podcasts and doing like all these things is every time you network with somebody new right you yeah. Like, that's how I met Matt, and this is, like, the greatest surprise of the day. <laughs> the show's not over yet. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, but really, that's, I think that that's the thing about Chicago is I'm not that worried about drawing an audience for any of the things that I do, but I like to, you know, have fun with it and meet new people. But the other part about the Chicago situation is there's a lot of competition for people's mm-hmm. time and money and energy. And so you could be doing something that's wonderful that if you went into a smaller environment, you get the mm. large it crowd. It is hard to get people you out. here, and you get a... It's a respectable crowd, but not what you would have gotten in a smaller town environment. It's very much about who you know. That's true. Well, I still can't... What were you doing at Taco Tuesday? Were you singing? Yeah, dancing? it's my band Deja Vu. See, um, I, don't know, I don't know anybody. Who, who are they? <laughs> what are they about? Uh, <laughs> it's just my, myself and uh, Kendall Bruns, who I think Matt knew from Cincinnati. Yeah, we, Do you know Kendall? We were classmates in Cincinnati at school. Oh, wow. Small world. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, so, yeah, we mostly played farmer's markets and small gigs like the Tonic Room one and would pull things together. We play, we write mostly our own music. He writes um, a lot about national parks. Oh, really? Um, and yeah. I write about heartbreak in a kind of Americana, like, country waltz style. And... Um, yeah, we haven't played in a while. We haven't had a gig in a while. Okay. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and we're maybe try to squeeze in another song, okay? So this is great stuff, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN, and we are talking about music and food, and Matthew Shelton is in with Nora Barton. Yeah. yeah. It's very good. Yeah. So, Matthew, we were talking during the break. Yeah. Have you ever done any radio work? You want to do the last 90 minutes? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, it's actually on my list of things to do this year is to, uh, to put up a demo or whatever it is that gets that ball rolling. Um, I've been told that for the past 20 years. And 10 years ago, I was, go, I was thinking about it and talking about it, but then I uh, got distracted. Ernie, our engineer, he just... <laughs> 20 yeah. years, he said. It's a, great, it's a great voice. Thanks. 
I do have, I put up a couple of things on SoundCloud of me reading. I read a Robert Anton Wilson article just because I wanted it to be available as an audiobook and just as a thing to see if I could do it. And people responded well, but I have lots of projects going and it just fell to the wayside. But if I could get paid to just use my God-given whatever this is, uh, that'd be great. Was there music around the house for you? Yeah, we all took piano lessons, and I bailed after a year, I think. But my sister is a, she has a master's in organ music, so I heard lots and lots of piano, and my dad listened to country music and Bob Dylan and stuff. It was always around. I like this touch. I think we should do this more often. What's Nora playing? What's Nora playing there? (laughs) I think it's still shaping. Yeah. Is it... is it kind of an improv thing, or you just... All it is all anxiety? It's kind of a... Yeah. It's building to all anxiety. It's impressionistic. <laughs> so, um, what, and do you have any dates coming up? Uh, I'm, 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 film, I'm screening some of my video work at The Hideout on January 22nd, and me and Alexis are going to... The other guy from Extraocular, we're going to do some improv live score some videos that I've been doing Um, digital video work has been my main medium for the past three years it was kind of a a deliberate U-turn in my life like I just started doing that very suddenly so I've been teaching myself for the past three years and I've been making music videos for people Um, it's taken off in interesting ways and it's like a a new life in some ways but I'm still picking guitar and making my old art but I'm very scattered in some ways and if I could just add a voiceover career on top of all that <laughs> why not I'm just, I'm just letting it breathe how do you think what do you think Molly does this sound good oh I this is would very listen to that radio. <laughs> absolutely number nine <laughs> <laughs> So, last question before we break for the news: um, What you, Molly, and, and what you guys do? I mean, I didn't know this thing about the hideout. Is it how hard is it to cross over with some of this experimental, progressive stuff? Chicago is real friendly. Yeah, I am amazed at the sizes of audiences I see at you know pretty um, avant-garde music. There's a very healthy support for that here. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's particular to... Sh- it, I've never seen quite so many... Such an audience for that kind of music. Um, I've never been particularly drawn towards out there improvisation until Nora and Alexis and I started. It just felt very natural, and it actually sounded good, and I was proud of it. <laughs> uh, whereas most improv, I, I didn't feel that way. Um, you for the hideouts that that particular bill is it's high concept labs so it's an arts organization that i had a a sponsorship with so it's a particular kind of night it's not your typical hideout bill i guess if there is such a thing but uh, (laughs) it's okay all right we got a break for the news Thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Matthew Shelton. Thanks, Nora Barton. 
And thanks, Karen Meager, for joining us. And we'll be back with more on Nocturnal Journal after this. Happy New Year, baby. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, baby. Happy New Year to you. Well, I made a resolution. I'm going to keep the whole year through. Give up chasing women, whiskey drinking too. Stop my ballyhooing, yes, and mistreating you. Happy New Year, baby. I think that's uh, that's Johnny Otis, Johnny Otis Orchestra. Nice song. Yeah, right. Very good. Um, so here we are with Molly McGowan, our co-host. How's it going for you, Molly? Oh man, this is just so delightful. All of my favorite topics: food, dance, music. And you brought in uh, Sarah Sherney. Thank, thanks, Sarah. Hi, thank you thanks for having for joining me. Us. You're director of Blue Shout. That's correct. Now let me let me say that when uh, we were talking about this, I, I, this is something I really don't know much about. And when Molly was talking about Such it, a I, shame. I, I, <laughs> what? We'll fix that. <laughs> my dan- my dancing days are long gone. But I, I and this is where I want to pick up the conversation at the beginning. I kind of associate it with the whole swing thing that mm-hmm. happened here, you know, ten fifteen years ago. So how is this different from what everybody knows about the swing? Thing? Yeah. So blues dancing is actually um, a little bit older than swing dancing, but done by kind of the same group of people. So it's one of the many African American vernacular dances that have come up in this country over the past one hundred to one hundred and twenty. Five years, and so instead of you know swing dancing being done in big ballrooms like the Savoy Ballroom in in Harlem, which is very probably the most famous ballroom in the country, blues dances were done in smaller places like rent parties or juke joints, and they never got that kind of uh, national popularity because they weren't visible to white folks, and so blues dancing has remained kind of a a little bit underground, whereas swing dancing got a ton of popularity. And so while when they were in their heyday, you know, early 1900s through the 1950s, the same people were doing blues dancing as swing dancing. Now the scene is actually a little bit divided where you have folks more focused on blues and other folks more focused on swing dancing. Um, How big is the group? Like That's it, really are there, are difficult to estimate. Is, is there a Chicago group and are there, there branches is, and stuff yeah, like that? So, so you mentioned Blue Shout. So Blue Shout's an annual event. It happens here in Chicago on the first weekend of April. And we have about 300 to 350 attendees, and they come from actually all over the world. Um, and uh, so as far as, for example, Korea and Australia, uh, we had a dancer from Russia last year, which was kind of great. And then Australia. Uh, I remember I hosted somebody from Australia mm-hmm. for Blue Shout. Yeah. Uh, locally, our monthly dance is called Bluetopia. It happens on the last Saturday of every month. And we generally have about 150 dancers at Bluetopia, um, as high as 250 when uh, usually the first of the first dance of the year is the largest. Um, so I guess you could use those as a gauge of um, of how large the local scene is. And Chicago is one of the larger blues dancing scenes, but there are scenes throughout the country and world. Where is this event held, Bluetopia? What's Bluetopia is at Forteza Fitness up in Ravenswood. Um, it's a recent location change, um, but that's where we're going to be for the time being. And what is it? Do you have like recorded music, live mm-hmm. music? How do, how Say somebody comes to this for the first time. What do they expect? Yeah, sure. yeah. Uh, so we so fun. It is so fun. So first off, I like to 
to brag about Bluetopia as a kind of a place for all comers. Um, anyone can attend. You said your dancing days are long gone, but <laughs> that I, can't be true. I feel like I can change that. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I can help you with that. <laughs> so many people come to yeah. these um, dances, and Sh- Sarah or other blues instructors will do a beginner mm-hmm. lesson, um, and then you get to kind of meet all of the other people who came for this lesson. Mm-hmm. I was blown away by how many people were at this last one. Mm-hmm. On yeah, our last event was just this past Saturday, and we had about 50 people, I think, by the end of the lesson. Um, and then we have DJ music most nights of the year, but we have a live band about three times a year. Some of our local favorites, like the Cashbox Kings. Oh, I know those with guys. Oscar yeah, Wilson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've had Joel Patterson, Jerry Hunt, um, Maury Sockett in the Special 20s. And one night of the year, we have a soul night, so it's all soul music. Oh, do you, really? Night. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what type of soul music? All of it. Yeah. So from Chicago soul music to kind of the more recent, a little bit of gospel, a little bit of northern soul from the other side of the ocean. So yeah, we try to mix it up. And what's the age group? Uh, every It's all over the place. Like low we to like, high. So from like 18 to 65. There's a lot of college Mostly, kids, but then there, is, uh, there are definitely a lot of people over 40 mm-hmm. in these events. Yep. Now, technically, can you not to get too technical, but like, if you, what do you have to remember in swing dancing, and what's the difference technically in blues dancing, or are there is there any difference? There's significant differences. Okay. Oh yeah. Um, and it really has to do with the fact that the music is different. So blues dances are very, very tied to the music that they are danced to, which is why there are different blues dances that come from different parts of the country, because the Chicago blues sound is not the same as the blues sound that you would get in the Piedmont region sure. or even in California or Texas, and so the blues dance. Dances are actually a group. So blues dancing is a, a bunch of different dances that are under the same umbrella. So you have Chicago triple is different from Piedmont triple is dis- different from Texas shuffle, which is actually from Oakland, California, right? And so all these regional things also hold true in swing dancing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can see as like swing dancing, like Charleston is a subset of swing dancing, um, and so. The thing that's, I think, most satisfying about black dances is that they are directly driven by the music that you're hearing. The movement is a reflection of what the sound is. And so the sound of jazz, big band, that swing dancing is done to, asks for a certain type of style of movement. And the sound of blues asks for something else. Like I said, Sarah can teach you how to blues dance in... I mean, you basically learn everything in the first 20 minutes of your beginner thing. Now, there's obviously more. You can always get better and have more more sort of vocabulary and stuff. But um, Sarah's really good at just ma- breaking it down and saying, here, find the pulse, find the beat. Just dance in the music and make the music happen. And, and there's a, a connection that is really important that you're watching the dancers dance together. Mm-hmm. They can give each other some freedom. They have space, but they're dancing together. And that's what's so beautiful to watch is you can see how connected the dancers are and connecting with the music mm-hmm. as well. And a special thing about blues, uh, blues dance that's different from swing dancing is the lead follow relationship is more flexible in blues dance. You have more of a give and take, more of a conversation and less of the lead is leading and the follow is following. Um, and that I think it is inherently very bluesy, right? Because blues is about bringing your story and bringing what you're working with to the table and so to allow that comfort between the partners is really essential and it also reflects the European influence because Africanist dances were not done partnered and while blues dancing retains a lot of the Africanist principles like groundedness and asymmetry and polyrhythm partnering came in from European dances and so blues dancing is done today often partnered but also solo and people will get out on the floor and dance by themselves wow you know your stuff 
It's been a little bit. I've been doing this for a little while. <laughs> hey, wow. Yeah. Now, we touched on this. Um, I try to be transparent on the show and ask honest questions. We touched on this even in the soul food segment. Mm-hmm. I, I got it when I wrote wrote my book on uh, on soul food and civil rights. But how many black people are involved? How many people yeah. of color? Mm-hmm. And we're three white people talking about we this. We are. Right yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how do you uh, talk about the demographics mm-hmm. and how you reach out to the black community? Is that important to you? Right. That's an excellent question. And it's especially important to us now. It's something our scene has been grappling with in recent years as we've kind of, you know, especially like with the Black Lives Matter movement, kind of understanding where we come into this conversation. Uh, most people that come out blues dancing worldwide are white. Um, and we have made an active effort to recognize. So the first thing about, you know, earlier there in the food part, they were talking about, you know, appreciation of where food styles have come from right same thing is happening in the blues dance community so the first step is appreciation and not appropriation respect and intent and am i doing this dance because i want to experience it and feel its joy and feel you know the emotional depth that i can get with a, a person in three and a half minutes to a beautiful song or am i doing this because i've got this kind of objective idea of what black dance should be or is and i want to obtain it instead of engage with it oh that's yeah. right so having that conversation with yourself is the first step and then having the conversation with the community is the next step and so at Blue Shout especially but also with Bluetopia we're trying really hard to even just say the words this is a black dance and I always say at the beginning of every, of every lesson, and we played a game in the in the lesson on last Saturday where we had people be an instrument. <laughs> you know, it's a fun game to play to kind of engage your, your body with the music. And I wanted to make sure that I reminded them that the voice is an instrument. That was great, yeah. You know, because it's really important that for a long time, blacks only had their bodies to make music with. And so the voice was essential, you know. And so, um, you know, reminding those little details there. Um it's difficult to give advice on how to make black folks feel comfortable in a white space mm. as a white-skinned person, right? But it's, in my opinion, it's saying the right words, you know, saying the words, recognizing your own limitations, making sure black folks are asked to dance. I do this also for people who are older. Mm-hmm. You know, I really want Bluetopia to be a place where everybody feels safe to come because that's what blues is about. You know, what do you need to share today? How does the music make you want to dance? How does the music literally make you want to dance? Yeah. Um, do you do you do outreach with with uh, kids of color? I mean, do they you know do you do lessons? Do you mm-hmm. show them about the history? We do a little bit actually. I've had the privilege of uh, teaching a workshop with the IIT Scholars Group one year, and we work with the. Um, Chicago High School for the Arts, which is on Augusta in California. Uh-huh. We work with them at Blue Shout, and part of our, our conversation with them is that we teach a Wester's workshop with them. It's really satisfying. Yeah. There are a couple other things like that um, in the swing mm. community as mm-hmm. well. We had Swing for Kids, um, where they're going to schools and doing after school or during school um, swing dancing programs. And yeah, mm-hmm. I know Nicole Wood spends a lot of time trying to remind people this is these have African roots. Mm-hmm. Is there a is there a division? I mean, is it, I told you I don't. Is there a division between the swing community and the blues community? I mean, is there one group? Do you guys ever get together, or is the swing thing gone gone away? I'm the I'm the crossover. No, there's a few of us that are crossovers. Yeah, there are, there are a lot of people who do both. Um, there yeah. was a dance for a while, fifty fifty, mm-hmm. that that I really enjoyed because. I so I do a very like niche um, type of swing. That's my specialty called Balboa. Um, What's it called? Balboa, the Balboa dance oh, okay. or the dance done in Balboa. Okay. Um, and that is 
I think Sarah likes actually talking about how that is like the whitest swing (laughs) (laughs) dance, Um, just because uh, it was really for like rich kids vacationing Mm -hmm. in um, Long Beach and Newport Beach, California. Um, And so the style is very different. It's more sort of upbeat, uh, like standing upright and and again, very close connection. But I love that a lot of the essential like foundational aspects are the same. The fact that you're connected with your partner. So I get to do really fast stuff in Balboa, which is Mm -hmm. like a little more like Charleston and then the slow stuff in blues. Although blues can certainly be fast as well. There you go. Okay. But I think what's important is that um, what you get from the dance is the same thing. You get Mm -hmm. A satisfaction of using your body to a rhythm and to experience creating art with your body and with a partner or without a partner and that where these dances come from folks did all sorts of types of dance and so i don't see any reason why you know people can't come Use to all these dances and just see what fits for them and what they like the best do you know about the shag in the carolinas mm-hmm. yeah, sure do. yeah yeah that's fascinating there are many different shags yeah. there are many yeah. different shags yeah yeah yep, i mean i've been St. down Louis, i go down to myrtle beach a lot yeah um, and, and um it's interesting because i i know that uh that dance is kind of going out of style now mm-hmm. it's called sos down there in north myrtle beach mm-hmm. where um they have the elders teaching the mm-hmm. kids the dance so that keeps keeps it alive are there similar stories to that? Just pr- dance preservation, mm-hmm. I guess, you know? Yeah, that's actually a big deal right now in the current national blues scene. We're trying to learn what we're considering kind of historical or region- regional dances like, for example, I mentioned earlier, Piedmont Triple, Texas Shuffle. And five years ago, I didn't know those dances existed. Um, and we have a few gurus in the scene. Damon Stone is a really big name who are traveling around and teaching us all these dances so that they don't die out. What have both of you? Um, what have you learned? Uh, how long have you been doing this, Molly? I'm only a four year. I think. Really? I think it's four, maybe five. She's really gotten really good in four years. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, it's funny that you said that too, because. Um, because I knew we were going to actually be talking about this today, I started just watching tons of videos, and um, I was surprised by how similar Black Bottom mm. is to Balboa in a lot of ways. And I'm like wondering about the influence there. I kind of read it places. Depends on what Black Bottom video you're watching. Okay, interesting. Um, I was looking at a very bo- early Black one. Bottom is that? Yeah, talk so about Black that. Bottom. It's tough because Black Bottom may be a racist dance. Oh. Yeah, so it, there's the story is that it there was a couple of kids who saw a cow in the mud and they were copying the way the cow was moving, and that was that that kind of digging the feet into the ground shape. But then there's also Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, mm-hmm. which is an, an old uh, stage show, and there's comments that the kids were stuck in the mud. So it's actually kind of complicated about where that history actually comes from. So we actually used to teach the black bottom, the like line dance, you know. And then I stopped doing it because I wasn't sure what it meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but I... You I know, was watching see, a partnered version of it, actually. So you see definitely black dances being appropriated by white folks. So did Balboa get inspired by Charleston, Black Bottom, other animal dances? For sure. Mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, given that it came up in the mid-century time, I think it's impossible to think that it wasn't influenced by black dances. We're going to take a break. Then I want to ask both of you again, that's why it's gone kind of like the introduction of this four years ago for you, how you found Mm -hmm. out about it. So... Don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Happy New Year, Happy New Year, baby, 
So ABBA's not part of your repertoire, right? At, uh, at Bluetopia. And, Sadly, no. No, that's their little New Year's New Year's uh, song they did. So we were talking, uh, Molly, uh, Molly McGowan, four years ago, how did you find out about this group? Okay, so I had a friend who was working the door at Chicago Dance Center for their Wednesday night... Once every when once every month on Wednesday, dance. I remember that, and I took a class with Nicole Wood mm-hmm. and he who shall not be named. Right, um, <laughs> and um, learned a little bit of Lindy Hop, uh, the basics. So one of the things, one of the other things that really I think differentiates swing from blues in the way that it's taught here is that swing dancing you usually have to start with your basic step. Um, I don't always like to teach it that way, but usually you learn an eight count or a six count step. And so you focus on your feet first mm-hmm. and then the connection and all that stuff later. Um, anyway, so I learned that and I come from a dance background from ballet, tap, oh, yeah. modern, stuff like that. Uh, so it was nice to kind of go out and try out a new style of dance. I think I'd done a little bit of East Coast in like plays, but I never really learned this connection piece. And there was something really inspiring to me about... Um, getting rid of this idea that I have to know the exact steps and the choreography in order to dance and be able to improvise and use my body to be more expressive. So Mm -hmm. I took that Lindy class, and then I came back the next month for a Balboa class and found that, you know, my body was kind of partial to more upright, balletic sort of uh, dance styles. And I got really heavy into the <laughs> into the Balboa. And partly it really was, again, to break from this mold of, oh, I need to know where to put my arms and how to do all these things and to just dance mm-hmm. and to, like improvise and find space in this basic step to express my own personality. Mm-hmm. Did you know, I mean, you like dancing, you had a dance background. How much did you know about the music? I mean, did the music draw you, or did you learn a lot about the music once you got involved in the dancing? Oh, that is such a good question, too. Um, I listened almost exclusively to swing and jazz in my teens. I listened to a little bit of alternative rock, I guess, um, because this was the 90s. And so there was, you know, a resurgence of swing dancing music um, uh, with... Cherry Pop and Daddies. Cherry Pop and Daddies and all yeah. those all those ridiculous bands. <laughs> so Neo Swing, not yeah, real. Yeah, that swing, Neo quote, Swing. Quote, real. <laughs> but I would listen to I basically just binged uh, Ella Fitzgerald mm-hmm. and Sarah Vaughn and I just loved the jazz vocalists and ended up singing jazz in college and just being in love with that style of music. So Yes, that makes the dancing much more relatable for me than it might be people who are not familiar with swing and jazz and blues. My first concert was a BB King concert, actually. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Wow! Uh-huh. When you said that, when you was, like called out BB King the other night, I was like, "Oh man, I've seen him twice now, and once was when I was six. So same question for you, Sarah. I mean, your introduction, you really know your stuff. I mean. um, so I've been swing dancing since I was 18, actually. Um, I think my mom and dad were really glad that when I turned 18, I wanted to go swing dancing and not like to the uns, uns clubs, you mm-hmm. know. Um, and and where, where was that at? I grew up in Florida. And oh, really? I first learned to swing dance at summer camp. 
at <laughs> like one of those nerd college summer camps. Um, and so I learned because it was the Gap commercial like craze when swing dancing was revived in the late 1990s. Um, and so I learned at summer camp and then I turned 18 and then I started going out to Atlantic Dance Hall, which had swing dancing six nights a week. I am not kidding. In 1999. <laughs> um, and so I got hooked immediately. I loved the joy and exuberance of Lindy Hop. I loved getting to dance with a person. I also have a concert dance background. I did 10 years of ballet, tap jazz and all that. And I didn't have a connection to the music. For me, it was the body. It was that I could dance with a human person and have that play, that give and take with that person. And then I went to school for college in St. Louis, and that's where I discovered blues, and that's where I really started to connect with the sound as well as the movement. Um, And so I've been blues dancing maybe 14 years. What's the scene like in St. Louis? So the St. Louis scene has kind of come and gone. Um, It's grown and then it's shrunk, then it's grown again. But the best person in St. Louis is Kim Massey. Um, she's a blues diva and we used to, this is how you know you're an old dancer. You'd be like, well, I used to dance on crooked concrete outside. And that's true. Um, I did, but now I'm too old to dance on concrete. So Kim Massey is this fantastic vocalist and she inspired me in a lot of ways. We'd go out every week to sit outside and listen to her and dance on concrete. What about, uh, in the time we have left, what about musicians? You mentioned you have live musicians Mm -hmm. once in a while. Do they feed off the energy of the dancers? Of course. How does that work? Of course. Um, Well, sometimes they just tell us that they do. It's it's not (laughs) obvious all the time that you know, that riff you heard really was a reflection of that cool move that you just did. But um, there are these these moments where you really feel like you're in tune with a particular instrument, which is why we have our students play that game sometimes. And then usually at the end of a night, you really have that. Everyone's rushed the stage. The musicians are just wailing on their guitars, their harmonicas, you know, and the, everybody's screaming. It's just like a real rock concert, just with blues music. I love that exercise that you did so much with musicality. Um And it did make me think about how I've heard musicians express that they wish that they felt like the dancers were Mm. listening more. I think Mm -hmm. that may happen a little less in blues. But but the fact that these energies feed off of each other is really, it's important, I think, for us as dancers to hear that the musicians respond to Mm -hmm. us as well as us listening to them. And Mm -hmm. so that interaction is important. Before we break, uh, I want you to go around and talk about all the upcoming events you have and websites where people mm-hmm. can find you and stuff like that. Yeah. So Bluetopia again, is Bluetopia, ChicagoBlutopia.com, and it's the last Saturday of every month. starts at 8 p.m. with a lesson at Forteza Fitness in Ravenswood. Blues Shout, so it's blues with an S, and then the word shout, all in a row, dot com. That happens the first weekend of April, and that's our big blues dance festival with competitions performances live music every night classes during the day it's exhausting yes um, like lectures to historical lectures, there are lectures at blue shout mm-hmm. and then big city blues which is bigcityblues.net is our teaching collective here in chicago it's recently changed ownership so the website is down right now but you can join chicago blues dancers on facebook for information about everything that is happening as well <laughs> Why you leave me by myself? 
Yes, you know I really love you And I don't want nobody else Have you ever loved someone And you know they didn't love you Yes, have you ever loved someone And you know they didn't love you I want you to take my advice Why tell you what to do I'm going upstairs I'm going to bring down all my clothes The man did me wrong I'm going upstairs, yeah I'm going to bring down all my clothes Well, when my so-called friends asked about me You just tell them I slept out door. Boy, I really love you And I want you for myself Boy, I really love you And I want you for myself Yes, I love you and I need you And I don't want nobody else Let me hear you, Billy Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal, and that is Mary Lane with special guest Billy Branch. Thanks for joining us. Jim Tulio on guitar, and the other guitarist? Mike Alcarac. Mike, how you doing, Mike? Very well. Thanks for coming in. And Mary, you want to come over to the mic? This is uh, your second visit to the show. You've got a new CD out. It is called Traveling Woman. But you guys, tell us about that song, uh, that song first that you just played mary how you doing mary fine and you it's good to see you again good to see you did you miss me almost (laughs) 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 so talk about talk about that track i think it's great when say traveling woman i did a lot of traveling and everything now i'm back in the city and i don't think i want to travel no more soon but like I say, I'm going to still be singing the blues and going from this place to the other place, singing with Billy Branch all around Chicago, and I'm going to make him blow his heart out <laughs> <laughs> on the CD, and it's going to be great. Mary, tell the listeners how old you are. I'm 83. 83 years old. And still kicking. <laughs> and this is your second CD. My second CD. Second record. Second? No, I got four. Oh, I thought this was the second one? Oh, the, the, I got two just coming out. Yeah. Yeah, oh. a new one, yeah. Traveling oh. Woman. And 
only can be Mary Lane. Right. And that's also the documentary. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Jim Tulio, a friend of ours. Great Thank guy. You. Thanks for joining us. Sure, man. How'd you hook up with Mary and what was it like to work on this project? Is this out yet? I don't know if it's Traveling officially woman. out. Is it officially out yet? Yeah. Yes. Um, a, an old friend of mine, a guy named Steve Soltis, who uh, owns a distillery now down in Thornton, Illinois. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, they, I think they did, I think it was a, a few years ago, they did a, um, a community festival in the park in Thornton, and they invited Mary to play. And he called me up, and he said, you know, do you know who Mary Lane is? I said, yeah. And he said, you should really do a record on her. You know? So they brought her up to meet me, and Mary and I hit it off, and we just started making a record. And how long ago was that? Uh, it was two and a half years ago. Two and a half years ago? Yeah. yeah. And... Why did you hit it off? What was the connection? And you know, t- and tell the listeners some of the uh, and Molly and some of the other people you worked with. You've got a you've got a pretty oh, pretty I've good resume. So many. I mean, um, Richie Havens, John Martin, uh, Mavis Staples, Aretha Franklin. I can go on. Um, but Mary, you know, Mary Mary knocked me out because she's the real deal. You know, she is the real thing, and uh, <clears throat> you know, she's not. She just, she doesn't try. She does. And when we were making this record, it was so evident because she, she would go into the vocal booth and just sing, and what came what came to her head, and that's how we basically wrote these songs. She would just go in and sing, and I and we do verse after verse, and then I edit what she would do to make a complete song, you know. But she's so good that she can just go in and do that. How familiar were you with her? I mean, she I mean, had I a record she, in '97. I knew who she was, but yeah. I wasn't that familiar. Uh-huh. But I knew who she was. I had heard her before. Yeah. Was there any techniques or any tricks you used for, with other artists, especially female artists, like maybe like Mavis, or was this a completely separate, separate discipline? Yeah, I mean, you? every every record you yeah. do is different. Every uh-huh. artist is different, so there's no there's no sort of formula, you know, or yeah. tricks or anything like that. Yeah. How'd you bring her out? Uh, pardon me. How did you bring her out? Um, or was it? She's pretty outgoing, pretty natural. Oh yeah, yeah. 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 Mary's real natural. Yeah. That's yeah. that's what I love about her. She's real natural. And how'd you write the songs? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I pretty much came up with all the tracks. Uh-huh. Um, and then she would come in and just sing. And I, she'd go into the vocal booth and just sing. And we'd do, you know, five to ten takes. And she'd make things up. And then she'd come in and I would edit. I'd go, well, that's a good first verse. This is a good second verse. This is a great chorus. And that's how we made the whole record. There was really only one song um, called Let Me Into Your Heart where... We both had to really sit down and write the song, you know, in a traditional way, because it wasn't a standard blues progression. So uh, that's that's the only one that we had that situation with. I see here John Rice played on that. Yeah. I know John. Yeah. yeah. John's got kind of a country background, too. John yeah, did a lot of session work in Chicago. John's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, great, 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 great player. Okay, so, like, leave that wine alone. How did that come up? Was that your idea? Was that Jim's idea? Did you veto ideas? Did you, that was my idea. That was your idea? Yeah, because I had got tired of him drinking, and I told him to leave the wine alone. You got tired You got tired of who drinking? Jim. Jim? <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink. <laughs> so how long did it take to get all these together? It, was about, it took about a year, because uh-huh. she would only come up maybe once every couple weeks, and we'd spend the day. So it took some time, and in, in the meantime, I'd built the tracks, and you know. 
And you said there's a documentary too. What's the relationship between the documentary and the Well, they initially album. came in to film Mary. Um, it was a college uh, student. Her name was Jessica Simmons. And she wanted to film, wanted to do, actually she was doing a piece on West, West Chicago Blues, West Side Chicago Blues. And so she wanted to film Mary in the studio. She ended up doing a small, you know, five-minute piece on Mary that we used for a GoFundMe campaign. Mm-hmm. And then as time went on, she dropped the whole West Side Chicago Blues thing and just focused on Mary, did a whole feature okay. on Mary. It's really good. Yeah. I've seen it. Mm-hmm. They've got some nocturnal journal in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, I wanted to ask you, where the footage of Junior Wells? That's in the documentary, the footage of uh, Junior Wells. And you was that was that down at the checkerboard? That was Teresa. Do you guys know anything about the history of that or where that came from? No, not really. I was there for three years. Yeah, Billy probably. Billy, yeah. But that's the uh, is that the clip that I turned you on to? Yeah, yeah. Billy, talk talk about that. Yeah, that's um, that is if I'm not mistaken, um, an excerpt from uh, documentary I Am the Blues. Oh yeah, with Willie Dixon and the new. Blues Generation, which highlighted, um, uh, along with myself and the newly founded Sons of Blues Band, that was a trip to Berlin, Germany, uh, for the new Blues Generation. And they came back to Chicago, the German filmmakers, and they filmed, uh, there's a scene with us with Willie Dixon in Teresa's Lounge, and there's a the, that scene with Mary with Junior in Teresa's lounge so that 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 clip is from 1977 or 78 is so, that in english or in german it's in english but they were uh they did a documentary on uh we were uh, presented to the berlin jazz festival uh as the answer to the question are there any young black blues players playing and Jim and Amy O'Neill, the founders of Living Blues, assembled 15 of us, comprising three rhythm sections, along with Willie Dixon. And um, it was a huge success, the new generation of Chicago blues at the Berlin Jazz Festival, which was the first time anything like that had happened on uh, that blues uh, stage. I'm on that jazz stage. Billy, I mean, there's... Coco Taylor, you know, there's 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 been blues singers. What makes what makes Mary different, and and Jim too? What what makes her different? Though? Mary, yeah, her style from, oh, o- from other female blues <laughs> singers. Well, like Jim said, you know, she's the real deal, and um, I've known Mary with probably what thirty forty <laughs> years, and because uh, I was just getting my feet wet back in those days, in those old Teresa days. And, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, what you would call a lot of the authentic blues singers left. And Mary certainly is one of the best of those. Back in the day, we had, there was quite a few women. We had Big Time Sarah, we had Bonnie Lee, we had Coco Taylor, Valerie Wellington, Barbara LaShore, a whole lot of them. And, you know, the, which unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the folks, they, they, they passed on, you know, across the board. But 
that I'm I'm telling Mary, I said, this is your year. Because, <laughs> you know, it's her time. Because she's been out here doing it all these years. And it's time that she does get some due recognition. Mary, there's, and listen to the record. I mean, and, and Jim, I mean, there's something so unfiltered and strong about your style, you know, and you know what I'm talking about, yeah. and it's 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 just so direct. I think that's what gives us its power. Does that does your um, experience when they're talking about Teresa's what it was what was it like for uh, um, a female to walk around in that world in, in the 70s? And oh, it's great. It just made me feel like singing the blues and being around a lot of blues. I mean, real good blues player like Junior Wells and Buddy Guy, he would sneak in every now and then and be in there with us and everything. Sammy Longhorn and all of them. (laughs) But like I say, but um, Sammy Longhorn, that was really my Guy, he, he, I loved him. He'd sit and go to sleep on the amp, <laughs> and I'd be saying, "He'd wake up and look at me and still be in the same key." You know, I say, "You good?" Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, it was just a great feeling to be in in the place again. Because when I was down south with Howlin' Wolf and all of them, you know, I I sung the blues down there too. But when I came up here and was in Teresa's and everything, the all the blues was just right in one, one block, you know, and everything. And I just, I just loved it. You know, Molly. I mean, in the seventies, I would talk to like country music artists. I mean, big ones like Tammy Wynette, and would talk about how they would uh, maybe you know, get taken advantage of, and it was a man, it was a man's world and stuff. Was it same thing true in the blues here, even in the mid seventies and stuff? I mean, was it hard for you to find your way? Or did you have support from the male community? No, I didn't have no support. I made my own support yeah. because, like I say, I got out there and 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 a lot of times you go around, you know, the females and everything, you know, singing and everything. They come Mary Lane, you know, she coming to take our gigs and everything. But it didn't bother me because I would get up there and I'd still be me, you know. Hey, I wouldn't try to get up there outdoing nobody else or none of that. I'd just get up there and be me. You know, Dave, you always ask your musicians how they got started doing music. Um, how did you get started? Doing the blues? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, my uncle in the Brinkley, Arkansas, had a club called the White Swan Nightclub and always used to go around when uh, Howlin' Wolf used to come around and play and everything, and, and he'd tell me, when he come back next week, I'm going to put you up on the stage with him. And everything, I said, no, you ain't. <laughs> like I say, so one night they um, put me up on the stage with him, and I started singing and everything. And me, me, me and James Cotton, I had a tune, Dust My Broom. And they put me up there after I sung that, that night. Then they told me, she can beat you singing Dust My Broom <laughs> and everything. And ever since that one night and everything, every weekend when they come to Brinkley and everything, they would put me up there to sing with with uh, Howlin' Wolf. we got to take a break for a spot. I'm going to come back and continue on your migration up to Chicago. Okay? Yeah. So you're not going to go anywhere, are you? No. Okay. <laughs> we'll be back after more on Nocturnal. Yeah. 
satisfied. Love you, Billy. There we have uh, Mary Lane and Billy Branch on harmonica. Thank thank you, Mary. And uh, Billy will be curating a performance. um, And Billy, I don't know if you'll be playing that on uh, 7 p.m. January 14th at Logan Center for the Arts, 915 East 60th Street, 7 p.m. January 14th. Can you you dance to that? I saw you were moving around. I can't help myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How can you not move to that beat? <laughs> so um, what, what will happen at Logan Center? How does this work? So you curate it. Do you talk about her career and yeah, like well, what we're doing here, and then you play a little bit? What we're doing, my wife, Rosa, who's right there. Hi, Rosa. I, uh, we, um, we are curators of this series. It's a uh, five-part series. And this was what actually led to the development of the Logan Center Blues Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, we presented the Logan Center with an idea that we had, which was actually this idea, was to cultivate a small series of local artists. But in the interim, John Logan, one of the uh, members of the Logan family, uh, it turns out it was a huge blues lover and harmonica player, so he said, well, Let's expand this. Let's make this national. So the first years we had um, Elvin Bishop. We had our band. We produced the Saturday night. It was Friday and Saturday and, and Sunday, I believe. And uh, then this year they brought in Charlie Musselwhite and um, Ruthie Foster. Oh, yeah. As well as, you know, local acts. And so then we went back to our original proposal, which is what we're doing right now, which is to highlight some of Chicago's top and especially some of the veteran uh, artists in the city. And I'll, uh, we won't, the first one we kicked off with Jimmy Johnson. Um, and, uh, you know, Jimmy Johnson just turned 90. Yeah, right. But you never know it by his playing or the way it's incredible. He's phenomenal. And so Mary will be our second featured artist. And I do a short interview and do a, a little acoustic number with the featured artist. And then their band performs for the evening. And, it, and it's early and it's family friendly and part of the... Um, the um, inspiration was to acknowledge the, our presence for the blow in the south side where it flourished back in the day and which now is very uh, very few places that you can hear good blues on the south side have you seen that mary in your travels um i mean south and west side uh the, you know we just talked about teresa's gone checkerboard gone um you know have you seen some of the clubs that you knew yes, evaporating. It, it won't be no more clubs like that. Uh huh. You play the water. You, what clubs do you play? Um, buddy guys and yeah. on the smoke daddy. I'd be at smoke daddy. Smoke on daddy. Nineteenth. Oh, you will be at smoke daddy. Yeah. 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 So you I, go ahead. I did buddies on the fifteenth, on the sixteenth, and the twenty fifth of November. 
Yeah. March 8th. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the documentary points out, you talk in the documentary about um, you you raised seven children, pretty much eight, eight on your own. Yeah. Talk about that. Yeah. Talk about that, what that was like, uh, the power of that, and also, you know, did you still sing at that same time, or what was it like to be? I've been to be singing a, ever since I was 12 years yeah. old. But so that didn't cut I, into your career? No. Yeah. I, I came up in the church, and like I say, after that, you know, start having kids and everything. I just stopped for a while. And then I started back when I got, I guess, about, I think I was about 17. And then I just really got into singing the blues and everything because at my house in, in Clan, and I stayed in a place called Clan in Arkansas, and we had a guy named, we called him Uncle L., he used to play a box guitar all the time. And he'd come to my house every Saturday, bring his guitar, and there's a little juke joint right down the streets from my house. He would go down there and sit down there and play. And he got, come on, go down here with me. We're going to make some change. Uh-huh. He carried me down there, and we had a little bucket. He would sit down there beside the thing. I started singing. They started coming up, putting all kind of little quarters and dollars and stuff in there. And that's where it really started from. So he passed away, and after he passed away, then I was old enough to really make up in my mind, you know, that's what I wanted to do, sing some blues. And the hard, out here doing this record that we just did, A Traveling Woman. Traveling Woman. The hardest tune on there was me, for me to do. And he just kept on saying, you can do it, Mary, you can do it. And I, I worked on that tune about six months, just at one tune. Because I, I, the music, I couldn't get the feel, um, you know, to put the lyrics to it and everything, and I just worked on it. Yeah, you can do it. You can do it, Mary. So I said, I'm not gonna do it, Jim. And she did. And, then, <laughs> and what's, I, which which track was let, it? Let me into your heart. Okay, all right. And then I say, I gotta do this tune because this man gonna run me crazy. <laughs> and I just made my mind as fast in the bedroom door, and I just stayed in there that night, and I came up with it. That is great. <laughs> Jim, you say in the documentary you think this is uh, Grammy-winning material. I think uh, elaborate on that. Well, I think it's good enough to be, uh-huh. and I think she deserves it. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, isn't that what it is? I mean, if- and you got to come to the show. Mm-hmm. Well, which one? The one with Billy? Yeah, the one yeah. with Billy. Okay. <laughs> Although sometimes I think, unfortunately, I think the Grammy sometimes is more about sales than quality. Uh huh. Sometimes that's the case. You yeah. and you too. <laughs> I think we'll be there. I think we can get there. <laughs> I, think, I think we'll uh, hold each other accountable. Right. Right. But your kids in the documentary, the kids just talk about how you empowered them. I mean, your spirit and your force and your will—you know, really, really—in you know, obviously yeah, made an influence on. That sings, you know, they're not really into the blues like them, but they, they, they sings. You know, they, they can sing. Uh, uh, the three kids they have by Morris, Morris P. Joe. Right. They, they sing. So, but talk but, about Morris. Tell the listeners who Morris was. Uh, what he's Tell, like. Yeah. Well, first husband. Oh, yeah. Okay. He had a musical career. Yeah. Our he, friend Bill Dahl is in the documentary. Yeah. With a suit and tie. I was very impressed. <laughs> he got dressed yeah. up. <laughs> <laughs> but Morris, I met I met Morris uh, when I was in Waukee, and he used to play at a place called Shooks. And I used to go down there on the weekend, and he was playing down there, so I met him down there. And um, I got it one night and sung with 
with them and and everything. So he told me I like how you sound and everything. You want to work with us and, and everything. So I just started singing with them and I came over to Chicago one weekend and and I worked with them and everything. Then they would come back to Waukegan every weekend and play. So that's how me and him got together. And, and he had his own musical career. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and Morris P. Joe. Yeah. yeah, right. For chess. For ch- yeah. Made chess records. Some of that stuff you did, like I Always Want You Near and some of that stuff, I mean, it has a, like a soul twist to it. I mean, it, it kind of deviates from, from the straight-ahead blues. There's like a little soul and R&B thing going. Yeah. Going. And and the, the stuff that Mean Jim did, that's, that's all the way away from what I do. What I was doing, the blues that I was doing, but like I say, as I did it, you know, I start feeling some of the tunes that I, I, I did with him and everything. But I like all of them. Yeah, yeah, Jim. I mean, um, Hambone was with us before. Were you were you around? And this almost gets into the dance thing we were talking about. Were you around during the whole Big Twist phase? Well, I produced Big Twist. Yeah, right. Yeah, I so, did their first two. Records. Yeah, talk. Tell the listeners and tell what Big Twist and the Mellifolds were. And, well, Big, Big Twist was a. I think Big Twist started his career as the drummer for Hank Ballard. Did you know Twist, Larry? Did you know him? Uh-uh. No, Larry Nolan? Yeah, Larry Nolan. Yeah. And I mean, legend has it that he wrote the Twist. Yeah, right. Well, I don't know if that's true, uh-huh. but uh, he claims he did. And his and Hank Ballard gets credit for writing the Twist, but he was Hank's drummer. And back then, the leader of the band took credit for any, any of the songs that anyone in the band wrote. Yeah. So, but that was his big claim to fame. And I met them in, in the 70s late 70s when they moved to Chicago and I, I started working with them. They were kind of like a um, R&B soul thing. They really weren't blue. Yeah. That's how I originally yeah. met the band. Yeah. That's how I met the they band were... because oh, Big yeah. Twist and the Mellow Fellows was the band's favorite band. Oh, I didn't know that story. Yeah, yeah. Really? <laughs> so whenever whenever the band was in town and if Twist was playing, they'd be at the gig. Wow. Yeah. And yeah. that's how I got to meet Levon and Danko and those guys. Yeah, yeah, they they really were something. Yeah. They were just uh, yeah, yeah. It was a great live band. Yeah, yeah. Live. Pete, Pete Special was in that band. Yeah, mm-hmm. Pete Special yeah. and stuff. Terry Ogolini. Yeah, yeah. So, Billy, what other projects you got coming up? You've got. Uh, I want to. It's not out yet, but this is a great idea. And uh, the fiftieth anniversary tribute to Little Walter. What right. a, what a great idea. Yeah. Well, um, I I I kind of. Uh, we went through a thing about the merits of doing this because I was of the mind, you know, there's been so many tributes to Little Walters. But this marked the 50th anniversary, and uh, it's my band doing four. We cut 14 songs in two days, and in addition to that, we have Little Walters' daughter, Marion Diaz, doing commentary. So she's relating some of the songs to the memories of her father. And when will this be out? You got my babe on here. You got my That's babe. A, yeah. But here's the thing about this. <clears throat> yeah. We didn't want to do... I mean, I've never been of the mindset to just copy what anybody... You know, always you got to put your personal stamp on it or, you know, distinguish yourself as an artist. So we took liberty. <laughs> so the my babe you're going to hear on there... It's kind of like a Latin flavored oh. my my babe, which was arranged by uh, my piano player, player Ariel. Ariel used to play with Valerie Wellington back in the day. But uh, so a lot of these arrangements have been rearranged. 
Some of them we stayed true to the original, but a lot of them we took the liberties and made them kind of our own. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and I'm going to ask you to come back just play a little bit of harmonica after the break, okay. and then we'll close it out, and we can talk about all these future projects one more time. Okay. Okay, so don't go away on Nocturnal Journal on WGN. Welcome back to Nocturnal Journal on WGN with Mary Lane. Mary, you said in that last song you walked on last night with tears in your eyes. Yes. You could, that was New Year's Eve. I know. You could come over to my house. I wasn't. <laughs> uh, I like that. Idea. So you had a question, Molly. Yeah, so you were talking about leaving an imprint, having an imprint on your music, and how you create your own styles. So Sarah here knows lots about blues music here in Chicago, but I am pretty new to it still, and I would love to hear from you all what recommendations you have for some like up-and-comers, like where to go in the city, um, oh, for man. people who like dancing, like I do, where should I? Like where should I be? Who should I be listening man, to? Who's your man to ask for this? Well, we got Kingston Mines, Buddy Guys, Roses Lounge, Blues on Halsted, Blue Chicago. I mean, this is the blues capital of the planet. Seven nights a week, you know, and uh, dancing. The Mines has got where the people dance a lot. But uh, Blues on Hulse is kind of tiny for dancing. But <laughs> Go to Roses. Roses. Roses, roses. yeah. Mm-hmm. The scene must have changed a lot, though, and the music must have changed in ways, too, yeah? Well, yeah, because you don't have um, as many places on the south side anymore. And it's somewhat diminished. We used to have, a, you know, a few more blues clubs, but the scene is still active and it's still... It's still pretty vibrant. It's still Chicago's still the the number one place on the planet to hear blues. Thanks. You're welcome. I like those tips. <laughs> <laughs> so the album is Mary Lane, Traveling Woman, on Women on the Blues Records. It comes out March. Is that what we're saying? March eighth. Digitally available now, and um, there's a Facebook page called Women of the Blues Records. You can visit that page uh, for more information on that. And also the... I oh, uh, liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Doing it right now. And, Billy, you're going to play us out with... Talk about the Sonny Boy harmonica you're going to play. Well, this is uh, like a throwback. You know, Sonny Boy was the only guy that used to play the big 12-hole Marine Band. This sounds like it, even though it's a 10-hole. Okay, as he goes out... Jim, can you introduce all the members of the band again? I want to give everybody credit who all is here tonight. Jim on guitar, Jim Tulio, Billy Branch on harp, Mary Lynn on vocals, and Michael. Alfarati on guitar. Okay. All right. So thank you very much, and it's going to be January fourteenth, Logan Center for the Arts, nine fifteen Sixtieth Street. Have you been to Logan's? <laughs> Have you been to Logan's? <laughs> so thanks, thanks so much for joining us. And um, thank you, Molly McGowan, for riding along for these three hours. And um, Thanks, we'll be, Dave. Thank you, Jim. And we'll be back uh, Saturday night with more Nocturnal Journal. So here's some Billy Branch for you.